Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here on the 27th of March, 2022. This is Authentic Biochemistry Productions podcast, the audio version. <clears throat> Today, I want to um, solidify a little bit of discussion of complex lipid synthesis in its relationship to the pathophysiology and pathobiochemistry of type 2 diabetes as associated with obesity. <clears throat> So we'll start off by mentioning a paper that was published in Diabetologia in 2020. It'll be in the show notes. And basically, they were doing a comparison of premier athletes and type 2 diabetic patients, similar age. And what they found, the upshot of this paper, was that they were using tandem LC mass spec and they were looking at fatty acid chain length, fatty acid saturation, and they were looking at just total lipid population, the athlete versus the diabetic. Then they looked at the small lipid droplets. This is all in muscular tissue, skeletal muscle, versus large lipid droplets that you find in the diabetic. And finally, they looked at subsarcolemnal lipid droplets in the in the uh, premier athlete and they compared that to what they call the intermyofibrillar lipid droplet that is accumulates in the diabetic so they wanted to know whether or not there was a difference between chain length of the fatty acid and degree of saturation the reason they wanted to know this is because there was a lot of i guess i'd call it anecdotal information that came out in, um, oh, between 2015 and 2020, that suggested that the level of saturated fatty acids or maybe uh, monounsaturated fatty acids was increased in the lipid droplets in skeletal muscle in that, again, intramyocellular matrix that were elevated in the diabetic as opposed to healthy individuals. So this paper was pretty important to be able to uh, discern that distinction if there was one. And what they found was that in contrast to the reports of having these profound differences in lipid composition from, again, the skeletal muscle from an athlete versus a T2D patient, what they were able to show is that when they looked at specifically lipid droplets now, there were very, very minor differences in tricyclycerol fatty acid composition. And that means chain length and uh, degree of unsaturation. Okay. Now, they did see a little bit of a difference in tricyclycerol composition um, when they looked at the lipid droplet subpopulations within the cellular mass. And what they saw that was that there, this difference was dependent on the size of the lipid droplet and, again, the subcellular location, but very minor differences. So they saw smaller lipid droplets in the athlete with a subsarcolemnal uh, positioning in the cell, and they compared that to intermyo 
fibrillar lipid droplets in the diabetic because that's where the fat accumulates in the diabetic. And then they saw very minor differences, slight slight differences in saturation. I wouldn't. I don't think they were significant, and very slight changes in chain length as well. So it looks like from this paper there isn't a distinction between the diabetic and the athlete. And why are they looking at this? They're because of the argument that a heavy load of lipid, and we talked about this in earlier lectures. In the skeletal muscle, remember that being a very important endocrine hormonal organ system, as well as being the skeletal muscle where you need bioenergetics to do muscle contraction, that the muscle, which is insulin dependent for uh, glucose uptake, and the adipose, which is also the premier organ tissue, which is also an endocrine organ system because of adipokine production, for example, leptin. Um, that you might see distinction between the kinds of lipid droplets you find in those different tissues. Now, the adipose is a different story. We'll talk about that later. Right now, I'm looking at skeletal muscle. And this paper says no real difference here. And so they're not arguing for chain length or degree of unsaturation to play a role in IR and insulin resistance. Because obviously, the athlete, there is no insulin resistance. And for the um, diabetic there is. Now, again, I've been lecturing for 20 years now that skeletal muscle in an athlete or simply in a healthy person, there is a great deal of intramyocellular lipid droplet in the healthy person because that is an excellent source and, a, uh, and the first go-to source for bioenergetic ATP synthesis from fatty acid oxidation. And the only time that that um, bioenergetic substrate, the fatty acids from the triacylglycerol stored in that skeletal muscle becomes limiting is when oxygen becomes limiting. So this is the difference between a sprinter versus a long distance runner, right? So as long as there's plenty of uh, aerobic metabolism in the muscle, the lipid droplet gives you more energy. And since it's not being translocated there, it's not dependent on insulin. It's a better source of bioenergetics. Uh, that is the fatty acid than glucose because you don't store enough glycogen to maintain uh, long endurance um, muscle contraction. And the argument that lipids can modify insulin sensitivity, that is unquestionable because it's clearly the case. We went over this about how um, the fatty acids themselves will block the mobilization of the glute transporter to the plasma membrane, right? And so downstream processing of the insulin signaling as well as immediate insulin signaling because of fatty acid corruption of the insulin receptor um, do play a very important role. Now, that's incoming fatty acid, not so much about storage triacylglycerol. So let's, with that as an introduction, let's now talk about triacylglycerol biosynthesis, the classical Kennedy, Eugene Kennedy pathway. So remember, you start with dihydroxyacetone phosphate and you do an acyl transferase from acyl-CoA pools and you make acyl dihydroxyacetone phosphate, which gets reduced to lysophosphatidic acid. 
That's one way of getting to the synthesis of LPA. The other way is to take dihydroxyacetone phosphate and go through the glycerol 3 phosphate dehydrogenase reaction, yielding glycerol 3 phosphate. Now you've got the alcohol, you have the ketone, now you have the alcohol, then the direct acyl transfer via the glycerol 3 phosphate acyl transferase. That also will make LPA, lysophosphatidic acid. The next reaction then, the canonical classical pathway, is to add the fatty acid to the 2 position of the glycerol molecule. This is, this is carried out by 1-acyl-glycerol-3-phosphate as a transferase. And now what you've got is phosphatidic acid. And phosphatidic acid, or PA, can be directly used for complex lipid synthesis in the form of membrane lipids like PC, PE, PS, PI. But phosphatidic acid can also um, be uh, hydrolyzed, that is the uh, anhydride phosphate can be removed via phosphatidic acid phosphatase, and you can make diacylglycerol. So diacylglycerol we know, because we talked about the many <laughs> utilizations of diacylglycerol for conducting an activation of protein kinases, Remember that and keep that in your mind. But diacylglycerol here is just being described as an intermediate in TAG synthesis, triacylglycerol synthesis. Now, before we get to TAG, which that last reaction, I'll just finish it for you in the Kennedy pathway, is diacylglycerol acyl transferase that loads up the three position after you remove that phosphate from it. And now you have triacylglycerol fatty acid as an oxygen ester to each of the carbon atoms for glycerol backbone. But remember that diacylglycerol can also be directly used for phospholipid synthesis, as can phosphatidic acid. And indeed, diacylglycerol can be converted to monoacylglycerol. And that the, the molecular species of that monoacylglycerol is the 2-monoacylglycerol. And we talked about that also in equilibrium with diacylglycerol um, concentrations as well. So there's your classical Kennedy pathway. Now I'm going to go back to the literature. Uh, that was just a you know general lecture there about uh, Kennedy pathway. And now one year later in the same journal, Diabetologia, this was published in 2021 in January, so about a year later. Um, let me tell you what this paper revealed. Again, looking at intramuscular triacylglycerol. And they're once again looking at subcellular localization because they know that um, not only is there insulin resistance in the diabetic, but that the triacylglycerol can be used as a substrate once you remove the fatty acids and then use it for, or use the backbone of diacylglycerol, diacylglycerol now, to make complex lipids, <coughs> that the stored triacylglycerol in the skeletal muscle, of course, is going to be a source of lipids which are highly bioactive. One of them is diacylglycerol, but the other, of course, are the sphingolipids. And we know that diacylglycerol and sphingolipids play a major role in insulin sensitivity. So they wanted to take a look at this localized intramuscular triacylglycerol. Remember, that's called IMTG. And so they looked at excess accumulation of IMTG in the skeletal muscle, in a diabetic system, because they know that's associated directly with IR. And what they argued in this paper was that the subcellular localization, and they're still looking at composition, 
of that IMTG could be associated with the overall metabolic homeostasis in the diabetic. So they did evaluate some cellular localization of IMTG in lean people, endurance-trained athletes, and individuals with obesity, and finally, individuals with obesity and T2D. So, And they used uh, liquid chromatography, mass spec, mass spec, just like the paper a year before did. Um, and then, of course, they fractionated via muscle biopsy, and they used insulin clamps. So they found that insulin sensitivity in this, in this paper was significantly different between each group. Now, that's not surprising. What are the, th the four groups? Remember, athlete, lean, obese, T2D. Okay, so you got four different groups. Now, some of the type two diabetics are also obese, right? And some of the lean are also, also athletes, but they, they separated out those four um, within their cohort of population. And they also tell us that sarcolemel, remember sarcolemel IMTG, was indeed, that's the membrane, membrane-associated triacylglycerol, intramuscular triacylglycerol, the sarcolemel, was significantly greater in individuals with obesity and T2D. And they got a really great p-value on that, uh, 0.001. They found that sarcolemel IMTG was significantly greater in individuals with obesity and T2D as compared to lean participants also who are athletes. But individuals with type 2 diabetes alone <clears throat> were themselves the most significantly increased with a certain type of sarcolemel triacylglycerol, and they claim it was saturated fatty acid. So they're saying sarcolemel IMTG was inversely related to insulin sensitivity, and they can make that claim because they're looking at diabetics, right? They also, though, found something very interesting that's unique from the paper we just talked about. They say that there is a nuclear, <clears throat> that is within the nucleus of the myocyte, a nuclear IMTG, and they say it was significantly greater in individuals with type 2 diabetes compared to lean control participants and to athletes. <clears throat> the total and saturated IMTG localized in the nucleus did have even more of a significant inverse relationship with insulin sensitivity, which means they caused insulin resistance, right? So they claim the total cytosolic IMTG wasn't different amongst the groups, but that saturated cytosolic IMTG was still significantly increased in the diabetics. Now, this is opposed to the paper we just went through a year before. <clears throat> they say, though, there's no significant differences between the groups uh, in the IMTG concentration when they looked for triacylglycerol accumulation in the mitochondria and the ER. Okay, so we know that there is triacylglycerol accumulates there as well. So what they basically say, you know, they is that this sarcolemel triacylglycerol is increased in the diabetic and is associated with insulin resistance. And not only that, there is this nuclear component of IMTG, intramuscular triacylglycerol, which they have not developed a, a clear role for in this paper. Uh, we can opine about it and speculate on it, but I'm just telling you that the nuclear tag and the sarcolemel tag, and maybe with an enhancement of saturated fatty acids, 
was indeed associated with insulin resistance. Okay. So that's why we're talking about fatty acid metabolism as associated with tricyclosterol production. Now, <clears throat> again, the Kennedy pathway allows for the production of phosphatidic acid. So we know that phosphatidic acid, again, um, can be hydrolyzed to diacylglycerol. And this is a very important reaction for tag accumulation because diacylglycerol is not just an intermediate. It's a bioactive lipid, right? It induces protein kinase activity. We talked a lot about this. Not only that, it's a direct precursor to phospholipids. That's via the nucleotide pathway. We haven't talked about that recently, but I've spent a lot of time talking about that in classical lipid uh, uh, lectures. But at any rate, when you make complex lipids, there is a nucleotide pathway. Uh, that derives, when I say complex, I mean lipids that are composed of something other than one type of lipid. So you've got the glycerol backbone and fatty acid that would be called the complex lipid, for example. Right? Membrane lipids, things like this. But remember too that diacylglycerol is also in equilibrium with monoacylglycerol, but where the fatty acid is only in the two positions, that's two monoacylglycerol. Now that's really significant because lipases Remember, there are only rare lipases that will remove that fatty acid. So you're not going to get back to glycerol this way. You're going to use that 2-monoacylglycerol as a substrate for new de novo diacylglycerol and therefore phospholipid and triacylglycerol biosynthesis. Now, keep, keep in mind that complex dynamic disequilibrium in lipid metabolism was not something that was looked at in those two diabetologia papers. So they're looking at a static concentration of TAG, right, in those various subcellular regions. It's, they appeared to do a good job, and they were separating out, and this was a human study, a clinical study. So they're looking at obese and lean, and they're looking at athlete and type 2 diabetic, all of that. But they weren't looking at dynamics of lipid turnover. This, I think, would be important for papers like that. If you're going to do research on lipid metabolism, uh, really with any kind of biochemical pathway, you need to be looking at changes in the distribution of the, in this case, lipid composition in those various subcellular components, but doing it over time, right? And maybe doing it during a contraction relaxation cycle. This would be, I think, far more relevant to looking at how that plays a role. The turnover plays a role, you understand in insulin resistance. So that's my little uh, research nugget for right now, okay? So <clears throat> you know that when you, okay, let's pull out from here. You know that when you take in glucose, you run it through glycolysis. And one of the um, intermediates in the glycolytic pathway is dihydroxyacetone phosphate, which I just told you could be converted to glycerol-3-phosphate. That's all in the cytoplasm. Glycerol-3-phosphate can be sent into the endoplasmic reticulum then. There's a glycerol-3-phosphate shuttle that we talked about for the mitochondria. There's also one for the ER. <clears throat> and it'll be converted there to phosphatidic acid. Okay? So that's where phosphatidic acid is produced in the endoplasmic reticulum. Then you can add the uh, head group to phosphatidic acid and make phospholipids directly in the ER. But you also could take phosphatidic acid 
remove the phosphate, make DAG, and then turn it into tricyclosferol. Okay. Now that's specifically something that's very important in the liver. Now, in adipose tissue, when you think about utilization of tricyclosferol, and this is again going to be lipase mediated, you're going to have free fatty acids produced and you're going to have glycerol produced. That glycerol can also be phosphorylated via glycerol kinase. It's another way to make glycerol 3 phosphate. Once that gets into circulation or when you have it in the diet, because there is some glycerol in the diet, that can then be converted to phosphatidic acid in the endoplasmic reticulum of the liver, right? Where a lot of this tricyclosferol process is going on. Also, the free fatty acids uh, can be uh, 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 secreted from the adipose tissue and then loaded onto lipoproteins or loaded onto serum albumin, something we talked about, or even as a, a fatty acids running free, but uh, in micellar form. And that can, be, that can lead to lipotoxicity, remember. But those free fatty acids can also make it to the liver. We talked all about this through the CD36 receptor, for example, a very important one. Used to be called an orphan receptor. You take in those fatty acids, run them to the ER of the liver, and you make tricyclosferol, you make phospholipid. Okay. So that's another important thing to think about the whole body level of migration of fatty acids and even glycerol 3 phosphate. And that will not be any different from talking about the liver than talking about the skeletal muscle. So you're going to have this constant turnover of fatty acids that is going to be occurring in the adipose during fast feed cycle that is going to be corrupted in the diabetic because the diabetic is going to be in what, what I call the well-fed state. And the well-fed state means you're going to get lipolysis for sure in the adipose because you're going to have a dysregulation of lipase activity, but you're going to have a complete uh, buildup of all of the lipoprotein subclasses in circulation. And that's going to mean a preponderance of lipid moving from the adipose and into skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, as well as the liver, the kidney, the lung. And eventually, you're going to get an accumulation of lipoproteins moving through the blood-brain barrier because of degradation of that barrier with age, with the chronic inflammatory responses of multiple diseases. And then what we're talking about this evening is, of course, type 2 diabetes. Okay, So we went from the subcellular and we went to the whole body and then went back to the subcellular. And I want you to get that because it's very important to understand. So again, phosphatidic acid to diacyglycerol to triacyglycerol is a classical pathway. So I want you to keep that in mind because... Phosphatidic acid can also react with cytosine triphosphate. That's right, the nucleotide, ribonucleotide CTP. And after hydrolysis of pyrophosphate, will form CDP diacylglycerol. Okay, so the nucleotide is going to be bound with that double phosphoanhydride bond directly to the lipid. Okay. That's what you're going to pick up. You're going to pick up that entire lipid moiety, moiety that diacyglycerol moiety. You, you've removed the phosphate from the phosphatidic acid, but uh, I mean, excuse me, from the CTP, but you've still got one phosphate from 
the uh, cytosine residue, and then the other phosphate left over from the phosphatidic acid. So you've made this phosphoanhydride bond between one of the phosphate donors is from the nucleotide and the other phosphate donor is from the phosphatidic acid. You understand? All right. And you did the, the reaction is pushed forward. Um, it, beca- it becomes uh, a, a very powerful um, exergonic reaction because of the hydrolysis of pyrophosphate to 2PI. Okay. This is how you make the nucleotide lipid CDP diacylglycerol. Now, where am I leading to here? Well, CDP diacylglycerol can react with inositol. Remember, inositol is a hexosugar made directly from glucose 6-phosphate. That's carbohydrate metabolism. I will explain that at some other uh, time I have in the past, as I, as you know. But anyways, glucose 6-phosphate to inositol. CDP diacylglycerol, which is synthesized from phosphatidic acid and CTP. So you got CDP DAG inositol. And you're going to form now CMP, so that's the monophosphate, that's one of the products, and then PI, phosphatidylinositol. So you see how we started with phosphatidic acid, and now we have PI, phosphatidylinositol, very important membrane lipid. Again, this is just giving you very early stages and a very much of a primer on complex lipid synthesis. Now, Phosphatidylethanolamine can react with, I can tell you how we synthesize PE, but it comes from serine. Um, Phosphatidylethanolamine can react with 3-acidenosylmethionine to make 3-acidenosylhomocysteine and form phosphatidic, or excuse me, phosphatidylcholine. Because phosphatidylcholine picks up three methyl groups from those three methionines. So it's trimethylated ethanolamine is choline. So you went directly from phosphatidylethanolamine to phosphatidylcholine. So this is not a nucleotide pathway, right? This is taking a preformed membrane lipid, PE, phosphatidylethanolamine, and you're converting it directly to phosphatidylcholine by reacting it with three molecules of methionine. So you see how complex lipid itself becomes even more complex because there are multiple routes for these biosynthetic pathways. Now, here I will tell you that ethanolamine, which comes from serine, ethanol, a decarboxylated serine will give you ethanolamine. Ethanolamine can be phosphorylated to phosphoryl ethanolamine and then react with cytosine triphosphate and the reaction, this, this reaction now is going to be catalyzed again by pyrophosphate hydrolysis to 2PI. And then you will directly make CDP ethanolamine. You react CDP ethanolamine, right, with diisoglycerol. One of the products is cytosine monophosphate and the other is phosphatidylethanolamine. So that's how we synthesize phosphatidylethanolamine from amino acid catabolism from amino acid metabolism, and they're reacting with diacylglycerol. So once again, you understand the complexity of this, okay? So I'm going to stop you, uh, stop myself, I should say, from completing any further on complex lipid synthesis because it is Sunday night, even here in the Pacific Northwest, way on the west end of the country. 
Uh, and in other parts of the world, it's going to be maybe even early morning uh, to people who listen to authentic biochemistry in uh, Europe, for example, because you're eight, nine hours ahead of us. Uh, so I will bid you a farewell from Authentic Biochemistry. I hope you enjoyed this. So we took two papers from the primary literature published a year apart. They just happened to be from the same journal. I didn't do that on purpose. I was really just searching for triacylglycerol and intramuscular um, lipid droplets. And I wanted to look at some of the, some of the current, current papers from people who study diabetes. So these researchers who publish in Diabetologia these are often clinical MD, MD, PhDs who study diabetes. So I want to get their point of view of what they're looking at right now. So I wanted to go back a little bit. So that's why I went to 2020, pull that paper out. It's like, huh, not very interesting. No big effect on sat, uh, saturated versus unsaturated or chain length. Maybe some difference in distribution. Then a year later, big thing comes out. Huge difference in distribution of lipids between a diabetic and an athlete or a lean person. And that is a lot of sarcolemyl triacylglycerol. And this unique feature, which I find very compelling, uh, having these intramuscular lipid droplets, uh, which are essentially triacylglycerol, showing up in the nucleus of the diabetic. And then that linking directly to insulin resistance. So that will definitely be followed up. All right, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, on the 27th of March, 2022, um, saying bye for now.